I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. Tell me, who is not on vacation, about your vacation. I went to the North Shore of Minnesota and I was briefly actually relaxed and I'm going to try and sustain that feeling for as long as I can, which will probably be like all of three to five minutes. I saw some pretty pictures on um, on Instagram uh, and I'm glad you had a good time because while you were gone, our podcast was banned in Florida. Oh, come on. I assumed that that happened a long time ago. <laughs> A bit, a bit informally, maybe, uh, despite our support for Florida-based writers like Jasmine Urbelina, uh, a state board in Florida with encouragement from Governor Ron DeSantis, not known as a listener of the Fiction Nonfiction podcast, passed a rule that forbids educators from saying that, quote, racism is embedded in American society and its legal systems in order to uphold the supremacy of white persons. Oh, shit. There goes the educational section of our website. I know. That's bad. That's bad for that. That's a, that we have to eliminate a whole bunch of episodes. Um, it's one of the founding concepts of this podcast, uh, not to mention every novel I've ever written and uh, your writing as well. Do you think we should be like a sports podcast now? <laughs> I, don't, I don't even think we could do that. Like according to the, there was, I looked up an article in the Orlando Sentinel about this. The new rule also says that teachers may not quote, share their personal views or attempt to indoctrinate or persuade students to a particular point of view that is inconsistent with the state standards. So no talking about Colin Kaepernick, and I would definitely not be allowed to talk about how I think the Tampa Bay Bucks suck. This like move to Gilead is really exciting. Um, this is a legitimately terrifying rule, and it gets worse. The text of the rule goes on to equate 
critical race theory and Holocaust denial. It says, I'm quoting here, examples of theories that distort historical events and are inconsistent with state board approved standards include the denial or minimization of the Holocaust and the teaching of critical race theory, meaning the theory that racism is not merely the product of prejudice, but that racism is embedded in American society and its legal systems in order to uphold the supremacy of white persons. Instruction may not utilize material from the 1619 Project and may not define American history as something other than the creation of a new nation based largely on universal principles stated in the Declaration of Independence. (laughs) So... Which one do you think they were really worried about? Minimization of the Holocaust or the critical race stuff? (laughs) Based on... (laughs) So anyway, very serious Big Brother shit. Um, You can say all men are created equal. We could talk about that. But you cannot point out the cases where that wasn't true. Brilliant idea. I think that, you know, like eradicating hypocrisy from American history is like what a ambitious project. And all of this is part and parcel of the new right-wing Trumpian bogeyman critical race theory, which I, even while on vacation, could not escape hearing about since it is being discussed everywhere in right-wing circles, not just in Florida, but on uh, Tucker Carlson in congressional hearings, on Newsmax, on Fox, on OANN, and by Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts, just to name a few. So to discuss this most recent outbreak of historical authoritarianism on the right and discuss his new book, The Cruelty is the Point, the Past, Present, and Future of Trump's America, which seems very much on topic, we are going to talk to Adam Serwer. Adam has written for The Atlantic since 2016, focusing on contemporary politics while often viewing it through the lens of history. Serwer was a Spring Fellow at the Shorenstein Center and the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, as well as an Ira Lippman Fellow at the Columbia University School of Journalism. He is a recipient of the 2019 Hillman Prize for Opinion Journalism. He lives in San Antonio, Texas with his family. Welcome, Adam. Thanks for having me. It's really great to have you with us. And just to define terms at the start here, I want to talk a little bit about what critical race theory is and isn't. Earlier this month, you tweeted... Uh, The campaign to ban critical race theory could never have been anything but a vindication of many of the arguments of critical race theory. And as has been widely reported in periodicals, not controlled by the right wing, critical race theory is actually an academic theory in the field of law that is not taught to school children really anywhere, including Florida. And Ben Mathisilli and Slate summarized it by saying... Critical race theory's originators argued that formal legal rights and institutional colorblindness don't guarantee racial equality. I live in Minneapolis, a mile and change from where George Floyd was murdered. You know, uh, he had the same formal legal rights as a white person and yet was murdered by police. And so to me, this seems like a pretty obvious point. So how did critical race theory become this rallying call for the right? So I think the exact uh, steps of how that happened are probably best, I think that question is best addressed to someone else. But in terms of the larger storyline here, the larger arc, uh, the short version is that from, I think about the time that the Ferguson uprising happened, there was a kind of awakening among particularly college educated white people regarding lingering racial inequality in the United States of America. And so there was this question of, of, how, when we have a black president, do we still have these issues, the same issues we had like 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? And, you know, the, the explanation that a lot of historians and in and, and, and particular black writers have been putting forth for a very long time is that uh, we have these structures that ha- have created inequality, that were built to create inequality and are continued to perpetuate that regardless of the formal um, equality 
uh, it, written into the law, you know, since 1965. And critical race theory is a body of thought um, that encompasses many different scholars, not all of whom agree with each other and not all of whom I, you know, would say that I agree with, um, that are basically trying to examine how it is that racial disparities persist despite uh, the existence of formal legal equality in the United States. Um, and, you know, if your belief is that uh, efforts to remedy racial inequality are something that the state has no role in because you're a conservative, you think uh, you believe in small government, or you think that these inequalities are the result of natural differences in capability between black people and white people or between white people and everyone else, um, then you're going to be hostile to this idea. And the way that the right has, um, you know, turn this into a political issue is by suggesting that these critiques, were actually, which are actually about not individual racism, but about, uh, you know, how institutions perpetuate inequality in the absence of individual racial animus um, into uh, this kind of idea that all white people are intrinsically racist, which if you go back to like 2008, this was the, you know, one of the big talking points that they're on the right was you know, the liberals think every time you criticize Obama, you're racist, they think you're racist. And this was, uh, you know, a key part of the strategy against Obama, which was to make uh, white Americans feel threatened by accusations of racism rather than racism itself. Um, but something happened, uh, as I said earlier, beginning around 2014, 2015, where a lot of people said, a lot of Americans said, well, how did we get here? Why do, are we still having these problems? Um, and they began to have much more liberal views on issues of race uh, than they did before, uh, in part because, as I said, the election of Barack Obama, uh, you know, to the presidency of the United States revealed uh, a lot of um, lingering problems with racial discrimination rather than sort of serving as a, a capstone to them. Well, I mean, one of the things I really love about your about your book is is the way that you bring history to play against these contemporary things and show repeated patterns that have happened over and over again in the country in the way that we intellectually and like in our civic uh, discussion repeat these issues and and strategies also from the, on the from the perspective of the right. You have an excellent essay in the book about the redemption period in American history, and so. First of all, for our listeners in Florida who will no longer be able to be taught about the redemption if, if Governor Ron DeSantis has his way, um, maybe you could just frame that period out for us and so we know exactly what it is before we go on to talk about how it relates to what's happening today. So redemption is how res historians refer to basically the end of Reconstruction. Um, and Reconstruction in American history is a long maligned period um, during which uh, Republicans in particular tried and failed to create a true multiracial democracy by extending the vote to black men. Obviously, um, this was in the 19th century. Women could not vote yet, including black women. Um, and, and that was actually a, a, a source of substantial controversy among abolitionists uh, when the 15, 15th Amendment was uh, adopted and, uh, you know, it, it did not extend the vote to women. But the idea is basically that uh, the Democratic Party, which was the party of white supremacy and their par paramilitary allies, uh, essentially violently overthrew the Reconstruction governments by preventing black people from voting, keeping them from, you know, both violently and through mere intimidation. 
Um, and the result was the ultimate disenfranchisement of black men in the aftermath of Reconstruction and the imposition of white supremacist rule in the South uh, until the, you know, until the mid 20th century. Um, and this period is very important because his subsequent historians, in particular, a group of elite white historians at Columbia University uh, who are referred to as the Dunning School, reinforced the white supremacist version of history. And in doing so, they justified Jim Crow segregation. Um, the historian Eric Foner refers to this as, as like a cornerstone of the edifice of segregation because um, they were saying, you know, black men were not ready for the vote and it was a mistake for Republicans to extend it to them. And this reimposition of white supremacy was actually the South's natural leaders returning to their proper place of things. Um, and, you know, some the idea that the United States truly belongs to white people and that they should be allowed to be in charge of perpetuity because it's ultimately their country is a, a very dangerous idea. It's the idea that has killed more Americans than anything else in, Amer in, in, in our history. Um, and it continues to be a part of the fabric of our political life, unfortunately. I think one of the most interesting phrases that you used in this book um, that I felt like named this kind of American historical um, obliviousness so well was you you use the phrase goldfish memory. And, um, you know, I think about the one of the scariest things, I think, in reading this book was also the way in which you sort of foretell how Trump's Trump is defeated, but does this mean a victory for, um, you know, those who oppose white supremacy, those who oppose him? And it seems like this, in the redemption essay, it seems like very clearly not. And so a lot of people are are mocking or laughing at the officiousness and inaccuracy of the statements that Republican leaders are making about critical race theory, um, and also just in general. And, but the the redemption was very successful, as you point out. And, and in the essay, which you wrote in 2016, um, you wondered whether or not we were headed for a second redemption. And I, I wonder now whether you think we were and, and if this 2021 CRT debate is an example of that or if there are other examples. I mean, I think we have there's absolutely a backlash to both the, you know, what, what Matt Iglesias called it, the great awakening, the, the, the increasing racial liberalism of white college graduates in parts of the country and uh, you know, the George Floyd protests. And there is absolutely a backlash to that. And the, the CRT debate is part of it. But it, it's a little, you know, talking about goldfish memory, this is also an argument we've been having for a long time. Uh, are racial inequalities the result of natural differences in ability or are they the result of government policy? And history says very clearly that they're the result of, of government policy. Um, but there is, you know, a strong impulse, especially if you make it personal, um, you know, it, it, nobody likes to be told that they have unearned advantages um, that have helped them get where they are. Some people are better with that than others. But, it, you know, when, when you're told that, it, it seems very personal. It sounds like people are telling you that you didn't work hard or you don't deserve what you have. Um, and so the, the CRT debate has taken those contours as a way of personalizing what is ultimately a, a criticism of the American government and the way that it built um, the white middle class at the expense of, uh, in particular, black Americans, um, which is a matter of historical record and which is, you know, uh, something that uh, one of the, the Democratic Party's more unfortunate legacies in terms of uh, not uh, in terms of segregating their early public programs associated with the New Deal. 
in a way that perpetuates inequality to this day. But the argument over, you know, this argument is ultimately, do we do something to fix that? And, uh, you know, the people, the people on who are demonizing critical race theory are not attacking really specifically this legal theory so much as they are arguing that these discre- these disparities are not something that the state should address because they're things that have happened naturally as a result of the market or natural differences in ability. And, you know, the state, it would be unfair and tyrannical for the state to try and remedy them. Um, you know, and you can see this. I mean, one of the, you guys mentioned voting rights before, but you know, one of the one of the key examples of this is 2013, the Shelby County decision in the Supreme Court. John Roberts says, you know, essentially the South has changed. Racism really is over and we don't need the vote. Section five of the Voting Rights Act anymore. And the immediate result of that was that voting restrictions swept all these Republican states where in some cases state legislatures were saying when we pass these laws, the Democrats are not going to be able to win anymore because they only win by fraud. We have been having this argument for a long time, and we know that people make this argument that uh, these uh, state policies that are meant to remedy discrimination are no longer needed. And when we take them away, the result is, in fact, that discrimination gets reimposed, in particular in the realm of voting, in order to prevent um, you know, particular groups from participating fully in American democracy. Um, so it, it, you know, the terms are sort of new, but in fact, we've been arguing about this forever. We at the top of the show, we read from a rule that a state board in Florida has um, put out uh, at the behest of Governor Ron DeSantis, um, saying that you're not allowed to teach the theory that racism is not merely the product of prejudice, but that racism is embedded in American society and its legal systems in order to uphold the supremacy of white persons. I mean, that's really what we're talking about. That concept, you know, I wrote a book in 2005 that was about. Um, the use of racial covenants in Kansas City, where I live, where written into housing deeds, it said, you cannot sell this house to Negroes, right? And, you know, that the most important real estate company in the city had used those covenants to segregate the city. It's very hard to argue if you look at those covenants that there wasn't something happening, you know, that was that was systematic, that was creating racism, you know, like, so there's a weird thing about this argument where it has to avoid the actual substance of the thing that it's trying to discuss, right? Do you understand what I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean, look, they still, I think they, I believe they took those clauses that say, I mean, they were inactive clauses, but they have these clauses in Texas too, where they say, you know, you're not allowed to let a black person live in this dwelling unless they are a servant, basically. Um, and this, you know, it, 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 like we were not a full multiracial democracy until 1965, until the Voting Rights Act guaranteed the right to vote for all uh, black Americans in the South, um, where previously it, it, it had been denied. Um, but Again, what this is really about is saying if state if the state created these inequalities and the state should fix them and people do not want the state to fix them. Um, and so it, you are in this case, this is I mean, like I, I, I have not read the Florida law, so, so I can't judge it myself. But a, a rule that would say, you know, you are not allowed to portray racism as a systemic force is a rule that says you are actually not allowed to teach American history accurately. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just it, it's just a fact. Like we 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 had local, state, and federal laws um, that discriminated on the basis of race, and we had them for a very long time, and they built the society that we currently live in. 
unfortunately. It doesn't mean we have to be like that forever. And there's an irony here, which is that, you know, the, the sort of the, the, one of the frequent talking points against um, racial egalitarianism and taking form in this sort of anti-CRT thing is that the people who are putting these arguments forth believe America is intrinsically racist. But the whole point is that they're saying America does not have to be racist. It can choose a different path. It's actually the people who are trying to keep people from learning about this uh, who are insisting on maintaining uh, 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 the country's present course and these racial disparities. Um, so it's 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 a, it's a bit of a you know it's a, there's a bit of an irony here in that the people who are accused of being critical race theorists, um, which has just become an umbrella term for believing that racism still shapes American life, um, are actually people who are trying to make things better. And if they did not believe that things could be better, they wouldn't be making these arguments to begin with. Well, about that repeating discussion, you also mentioned in the book that term political correctness. So I feel like political correctness is like what critical race theory is like. It's a placeholder for the same kind of argument that, that we're talking about here. And you say from a per, different per, vantage point, what Trump's supporters refer to as political correctness is largely the result of marginalized communities gaining sufficient political power to project their prerogatives onto society at large. I mean, that is what's happening. The the, the company that I was talking about in Kansas City, you know, had their name removed from a fountain because black leaders in the city who were on the parks board, and you know, were, were like, hey, we don't want this guy. And, and because I and other people had written about it and people knew about it. And suddenly people were like, hey, we have enough political power to, to not do this right now. Right. And that's, I think, what is at, at core what's upsetting here, that actually people are understanding and believing and understanding the concept that race has shaped American life over time. A couple of things have happened. One is that there are obviously more elected officials of color. The, the, our political class is getting more diverse. That doesn't mean it's not still like disproportionately white, but it is getting more diverse than it previously had been. And I think, you know, in 2008, um, the ele- that election and the election of Barack Obama in particular um, led to a lot of newsrooms, you know, diversifying their staff. And as a result, there was a sort of rapid change in perspective in terms of suddenly you had all these black writers who were writing about black things and writing about them as black people. And that didn't mean that they all agreed, but it did mean that they were giving a a, a different perspective from what you would typically get um, from a newsroom that was almost entirely white or or, or made up of people who went to Ivy League schools. Um, And so, uh, you know, I think both of those things, I think from, from the right, to you, it looks like the culture changed extremely rapidly and you don't know why. And that's very alarming. Um, you know, one example I typically give is how, you know, Barack Obama's position on same-sex marriage in 2008 uh, and 2009 would be considered horrible bigotry today. Um, and it hasn't been that long. Um, you know, it, it's been about, uh, you know, 12 years or whatever. Um, and so, you know, for people whose, you know, religious faith tells them that uh, same-sex marriage is wrong, um, you know, that's pretty scary for them because, you know, in 2004, they had the overwhelming, the overwhelming majority of the country was on their side. And then, you know, s- six years later, uh, it was completely in the other direction. Um, and I think something similar is happening, again, you know, with the integration of, uh, a lot of these elite spaces, 
um, in part as a result of Barack Obama's election, things changed very fast. And I think a lot of people really didn't like that. They didn't like how quickly people suddenly um, began, were able to shift the terms of the debate to where someone like Robert E. Lee, who, you know, was uh, a revered, a, 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 a figure who was revered in a bipartisan fashion for many, many decades, um, you know, is being reevaluated as, you know, the leader of uh, the army for a slave empire who literally, you know, when he invaded Pennsylvania, kidnapped free black people and, and sold them into slavery, refused to uh, refused to exchange um, black troops for his own white Confederate troops because he considered those uh, those captured Union black troops to be, quote, contraband. Um, this is obviously, you know, this is not a person who should be celebrated. Uh, it's a man who took up arms against his country to defend the institution of human bondage. Um, but at one point, he was someone who everybody thought of as like a great guy. Um, and when we talk about political correctness, I think people are expressing anxiety about those things changing very rapidly and not wanting to be on the wrong side of those arguments. And also, you know, having, um, you know, not wanting to feel the social anxiety of dealing with rapidly changing standards that you don't fully understand. Um, but ultimately, you know, as I say in that essay, political correctness is a function of power. It's not a function of truth. Robert E. Lee was the same person he was 80 years ago as he is, you know, when we're talking about him now. What's changed is who is talking about him in the way that we're talking about him. When you're talking about this integration of elite spaces, I think even of the battle over renaming campus buildings, I teach at the University of Minnesota, where this has been discussed in, in my own neighborhood. Um, I live near a lake formerly known as Calhoun. Um, and then it was renamed or rather returned to its native name. And my neighborhood has been renamed. I think I mentioned this on an earlier episode, Whitney, like the someone attempted to rig the neighborhood election for the neighborhood name. And the only reason I can figure is so that it wouldn't include the native name of the lake. Yeah. Um, so someone like went and electronically tampered with the local, like it's the smallest possible. I can't think of a smaller version of rigging an election. Um, That's pretty stressful. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I don't even want to overstate it. I, we're not talking about like a, a dramatic integration of these elite spaces. Um, like, I don't want to overstate it. It's just that they are m more integrated than they used to be. And that has caused a lot of disruption. I don't mean that they're actually, you know, uh, uh, models of diversity as, as we might think of it. I just mean that there is an increased competition in these spaces that has provoked a backlash, um, in part because some of these spaces are where the terms of our uh, political debates are set. And I think by mentioning this instance in my neighborhood, I, I suppose I'd, I just mean to indicate it seems to me like this anxiety is so per pervasive down to even the very smallest um, units of government that I can think of. And um, and you write so persuasively and again, terrifyingly, at least to me, about state force. Um, my family, Sri Lankan, I think very much about state terror um, and, you know, the the notion that this backlash is is coded in ways that make it look acceptable, whether that's by adopting um, sort of some of the language of progressivism, like one of the responses to um, defenses or attacks on Confederate history and, and you know, the accurate, accurate depictions of who these leaders are is to say, well, you know, I'm just appreciating my own heritage in the way that you're appreciating yours, you know, for example. Um, 
and then but then we also have you know as you write there are they're saying um you know the right is is talking about um excesses of about defending free speech and then is also curtailing it um including things like book banning curriculum um you know uh, talking about the florida law and so i mean i are you anticipating any of this for your book? I mean, I, I mean, is your like, book been anywhere yet? <laughs> I would, I mean, I would be surprised, but like, look, the logic of this is that, I mean, I mean, ironically, uh, the, 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 I mean, ironically, question mark, there is a, a sort of critical race theory style explanation for this, which is that when they say free speech, they mean their ability to say whatever they want and also their ability to make you shut up. Um, and so that it, it, when you criticize them for being racist, that is an infringement on their free speech um, because you are maligning them and causing them public sanction. And also when they are banning, uh, you know, certain ideas from being discussed in the classroom, that is also free speech because, you know, they can do what they want. Um, and, it, and it's your dangerous ideas that need to be suppressed. And the lot the, the, it, it is. You know, it sort of seems hypocritical, but it's critical, but there's a logic to it, which is that they have rights and you do not have rights. Um, and unfortunately, that's, uh, you know, <laughs> that has a long pedigree in American history. So uh, before your book is banned in Florida or Nebraska or anywhere else, which, of course, we hope does not happen, could you read to us as an example of the kind of revisionist and by that I mean accurate history that Ron DeSantis and Trump and other Republican leaders would like to make sure no one hears? I'm thinking of your essay specifically, The Myth of the Kindly General Lee, which was originally from June 2017, pre-Charlottesville. And like so much of your book, it feels very prescient and also immediately relevant to me. Uh, yeah, I would love to. I will um, tee it up here. The strangest part about the continued personality cult of Robert E. Lee is how few of the qualities his admirers profess to see in him he actually possessed. Memorial Day has the tendency to conjure up old arguments about the Civil War. That's understandable. It was created to mourn the dead of a war in which the Union was nearly destroyed, when half the country rose up in rebellion in defense of slavery. This year, the removal of Lee's statue in New Orleans has inspired a new round of commentary about Lee, not to mention protests on his behalf by white supremacists. The myth of Lee goes something like this. He was a brilliant strategist and devoted Christian man who abhorred slavery and labored tirelessly after the war to bring the country back together. There is little truth in this. Lee was a devout Christian, and historians regard him as an accomplished tactician. But despite his ability to win individual battles, his decision to fight a conventional war against the more densely populated and industrialized North is considered by many historians to have been a fatal strategic error. But even if one conceded Lee's military prowess, he would still be responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans in defense of the South's authority to own millions of human beings' property because they were black. Lee's elevation is a key part of, of a 150-year-old propaganda campaign designed to erase slavery as the cause of the war and whitewash the Confederate cause as a noble one. That, that ideology is known as the Lost Cause, and as the historian David Blight writes, it provided a foundation on which Southern, Southerners built the Jim Crow system. There are unwitting victims of this campaign, those who lack the knowledge to separate history from sentiment. Then there are those whose reverence for Lee relies on replacing the actual Lee with a mythical figure who never truly existed. In the Richmond Times-Dispatch, R. David Cox wrote that for Lee's white supremacist protesters to invoke his name violates Lee's most fundamental convictions. In the conservative publication Town Hall, Jack Kerwick concluded that Lee was among the finest human beings that has ever walked the earth. 
John Daniel Davidson, in an essay for The Federalist, opposed the removal of the Lee statue in part on the grounds that Lee arguably did more than anyone to unite the country after the war and bind up its wounds. Praise for Lee of this sort has flowed forth from past historians and presidents alike. This is too divorced from Lee's actual life to even be classified as fan fiction. It is simply historical illiteracy. White supremacy does not violate Lee's most fundamental convictions. White supremacy was one of Lee's most fundamental convictions. Lee was a slave owner. His own views on slavery were explicated in an 1865 letter that is often misquoted to give the impression that Lee was some kind of abolitionist. In the letter, he describes slavery as a moral and political evil, but goes on to explain that, I think it, however, a greater evil to the white man than the black race, while my feelings are strongly enlisted in behalf of the latter, my sympathies are more strong for the former. The blacks are immeasurably better off here than in Africa, morally, socially, and physically. The painful discipline they are undergoing is necessary for their instruction as a race, and I hope will prepare and lead them to better things. How long their subjugation may be necessary is known and ordered by a wise, merciful providence. Their emancipation will sooner result from the mild and melting influence of Christianity than the storms and tempests of fiery controversy. The argument here is that slavery is bad for white people, good for black people, and most important, better than abolitionism, emancipation must wait for divine intervention. That black people might not want to be slaves does not enter into the equation. Their opinion on the subject of their own bondage is not even an afterthought to Lee. Thank you very much. Um, I mean, this, <laughs> you know, this rewriting of history seems to be at the core, you know, of what we're talking about and what your book is talking about, really. I mean, and in a way, when you say, you know, the title of the book is The Cruelty is the Point, cruelty is not just physical, right? It could be intellectual or emotional and like the insistence that one thing is true when it when there's clear evidence in one part of the population or you know and all the population should know that it's not true that is a form of cruelty also is it not it's 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 a display of power just like just like a phalanx of police or a military parade it's a display of power but i think as you know as as the lee essay discusses this um Reversal of history is significant because it, it allows you to do certain things in the present. And again, this is what this debate is about. We're, to, we're arguing about the past because it defines whether or not we have a just present. Um, and if you, and what the lost cause did is, is it allowed segregationists to say the current social arrangement in the South where black people are denied their basic rights is a legitimate one. It's legitimate because you know, the Confederacy was not fighting for slavery, it was fighting for freedom. And because during Reconstruction, uh, we tried to give black people the vote, but they were incapable of exercising uh, their political rights with wisdom, by which they meant they opposed white supremacy. Um, and so we are arguing about the past, but we're really arguing about the present. And we're arguing about whether or not our present is a just present. Um, and for many, many years, uh, this these uh, rosy understandings about the Confederacy and Robert E. Lee and this misunderstanding of Reconstruction was used to justify the policies that were set that, you know, perpetuate inequalities to this day. Uh, and that's, you know, one of the reasons why a lot of people simply do not want us to discuss it or who cannot argue it on the merits and then and therefore dismiss it as political correctness or something else. So when you're 
when you read that passage about Lee, I couldn't help but think of a, there's a later passage you have about the vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens, who said uh, quite clearly in a speech that what the Confederate states had been founded on was the, quote, um, great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. Um, and then later, when his side was losing the war and he was in jail, he kind of backed off of this position. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about him. No, so he, it wasn't, they weren't losing. They had lost. It was done. The Confederacy was over. So they understood perfectly well that they now were going to go down in history, as Grant put it, um, having fought for one of the worst causes that human beings had ever fought for. Um, and so he, <laughs> Alexander Stevens, who famously said, uh, the great cornerstone of Confederate society is that the Negro is not equal to the white man. Uh, said, ah, oh, that was fake news. The reporter misreported it. Um, you know, this is just the fake news media is smearing the right again. It's so amazing how exactly similar. <laughs> well, so the technical, the, like the techniques are exactly the same. <laughs> like, oh, the reporter got it wrong. He misquoted me. The news is unfair. We people are doing that now. There's a there's a great piece in the New Republic about this by one of my former colleagues at the Atlantic Map Four. But like, our, arguably, our first fake news crisis was that. Um, a lot of Democratic newspapers uh, insisted that the Ku Klux Klan wasn't real. Um, you know, when essentially like, you know, there, there are black people testifying in Congress and, and, and soldiers testifying in Congress that the Ku Klux Klan is real. It's this paramilitary insurgency that's happening in the South that's attacking black people. And there are all these newspapers saying, now nah, this is made up. The Ku Klux Klan isn't real. Um, so, you know, part of the point of the book is to say, this whole Trump thing comes out of somewhere. It's not just like an aberration. It is a part of American history. It's a part of our legacy. But the Stevens thing is an example of what I said earlier, which is that it's very hard, you know, to reconcile, um, you know, it, it, the cornerstone speech with the idea that all men are created equal. At the same time, uh, you know, the the inequality of the rights um, that this country was supposedly founded on is an in inseparable fact of the implementation of those ideals. Um, so those are both, again, completely authentic expressions of the American idea because they are intertwined at the founding. Um, and, and, and we're never going to, I'm not sure that we're ever going to have, you know, one or the other have a total complete victory. We're always going to go back to this fight. But the Stevens thing is funny because, I mean, it's sort of funny, but it's not funny in hindsight because both Stevens and Jefferson Davis, after the war, set the stage for the lost cause by lying about, uh, you know, what the Confederacy was about in the first place. They both insisted that they had no hostility uh, towards black people whatsoever. They did not, you know, they were not fighting for slavery, but of course they, they did and they were. Um, and this sort of whitewashing of that history set the stage for uh, the Jim Crow order, and it's and it continues to perpetuate Americans' misunderstanding of racial inequality to this day. So when I think about um, my own education about, you know, I grew up in Maryland and spent a lot of my childhood visiting Civil War sites, Virginia, Pennsylvania, etc. And I think about the way in which the Civil War was originally presented to me as a war about slavery. And then in school and in conversation and in reading, um, I was encouraged to believe that there was a more nuanced view, right? Like, and it was presented as nuance. And then so much of this conversation um, in more recent years has sort of been like, no, actually, you know, um, 
the first the first view of that was right. And so even there, like the complication of the causes behind it is presented as like, oh, no, actually, like, you're just flattening things, right? You're just, um, this is a very, this is a very blunt uh, historical point of view to think that it was only about slavery. Um, and yet that was and, and yet that was correct. And so, um, like, even there, it feels like the the rhetorical tactics of um, intellectuals, of progressive thinking of causes, like it's sort of masked in this certain way. And um, like, I, I think that, you know, there are probably as a young student, like reading this, I was sort of like, oh, I see, like I at first um, read this in a certain way and, and I must be misunderstanding and there must be more here about the economy. And, and of course those things are factors, but um, they're all factors connected to slavery. And so the ways that this is taught in school, how much do you think the work of journalism, you talk about presentism and, and goldfish memory, how much of the work of journalism now do you think is really kind of the work of big history? Because so much of your work engages with this in a way that I so appreciate, like that, um, like the, the present is put in context. And, you know, as, as other people rip it out of context, you're sort of shoving it back in and saying, no, this is where it goes. This is, this is the piece in the puzzle. And there's all of these other pieces around it. And you have to look at the whole thing. It is understandable that the news focuses on what's new. Um, you know, uh, we are, as journalists, we're trained to say, you know, is this new? Is this something that my, my audience doesn't already know? But it's also the case that uh, you know, people uh, forget things and that it's important to put them in a historical context. And I mean, by by way of example, I mean, David Blight, the historian that I quoted in that Lee passage, I mean, he wrote the introduction to a report by the Southern Poverty Law Center that showed that schools all over the country uh, are do not teach slavery or the Civil War correctly. Um, and that this is a, a really big problem because, again, it, it, it allows people to misunderstand uh, not only the history, but the present. So uh, we're going to play a little clip here that I, I would like you to react to because I think it also focuses on uh, a strategy that you talk about in your book. Also, like there's a way of flipping this discussion so that the right becomes the victims of the overbearing and authoritarian left, right? When actually that's not really what's happening, right? Um, and this is a recent thing from Tucker Carlson that just came out on June 24th. White men, they're the problem. You hear that so often that you don't pause to consider what a change this is. It used to be only a few years ago that the one thing you couldn't do in America was attack people in public on the basis of their race. I don't like that group because of their skin color. Let's hurt them. You couldn't say that. It was the one unacceptable thing, and for very good reason. You cannot maintain a multiracial democracy unless people of every color have exactly the same rights and responsibilities under the law and are considered of precisely the same moral value under God. You have to have that. That's the most basic prerequisite for a multiracial democracy. All lives have to matter or it cannot work. It's pretty clear that our leadership class, for whatever reason, doesn't want it to work. Obviously, they don't. Look at what they're doing. When you hear people ascribe blood guilt to a specific racial group, when you hear them talk about the sin of whiteness, what you're watching is the death of our future as a country. Yeah. Um, so this idea of presenting racism as anti-racism and anti-racism as racism, again, goes back to Reconstruction. Uh, I, I wrote a piece for the New York Times this weekend 
that you can find in a Sunday review um, that quotes John T. Morgan, who was a Confederate general and a, a, a six-term senator from Alabama. And in 1890, he's writing about uh, the, he's justifying the disenfranchisement of black men. And what he says is that black men uh, w- were uh, given with an implacable hostility towards their former owners and used the ballot as a weapon against white people. Um, and this is very much in that tradition. You know, there, there, there were no, the idea that uh, criticisms of systemic discrimination in the United States are the same as offering a, 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 a biological determinist explanation of why white people are a certain way is just flatly incorrect. Um, but it is the kind of argument you make when you want to justify depriving people of their political rights, which is what the mob at the Capitol was trying to do. It was sort of a farce, a clownish attempt at overturning the election, but they believed um, that this multiracial coalition that had erected uh, that had elected Joe Biden president um, was illegitimate because Trump told him it was Ill- illegitimate. He told him it was illegitimate because of the vo- votes from Detroit and Atlanta and Philadelphia, um, even though he did better in those places than he did in 2016. Uh, and they stormed the Capitol. And w- what Carlson does pretty much every night is try to convince uh, uh white Republicans, that they are in danger, that there is a, a, a wave of anti-white racism that is going to strip them of their rights and destroy their country. And he does that because he wants them to be able to intellectually justify doing things like disenfranchising black voters or making or, or altering election rules so that it's easier for Republicans to get elected and harder for Democrats to get elected and to justify stripping people of their basic political rights. Um, because after all, then it's an act of self-defense. And again, that goes right back to redemption. It goes right back to reconstruction. It goes right back to Jim Crow. And there's nothing at all new about it. And Carlson is very much aware of what he's doing. And in that clip, um, I feel like I could read an entire book on that episode alone. Um, But that clip is a setup for his attack on Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who said this. I want to understand white rage. And I'm white. And I want to understand it. So... What is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America? What caused that? I want to find that out. I want to maintain an open mind here, and I do want to analyze it. It's important that we understand that because our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and guardians, they come from the American people. So it is important that the leaders now and in the future do understand it. Well, I think that it, one of the, part of the context you need to understand here is that the military is very diverse. Um, it's like you know, almost half non-white at this point. So Millie understands that white identity politics is bad for good, good, good order and cohesion, and it's bad for the, the, the military's recruiting base. So he is trying to maintain a, an important multiracial institution a, a, in the United States, and he's very aware that the kind of white identity politics that Carlson is engaging in is harmful to good order and discipline within the military. So that's what he's responding to. Um, and, and not to mention the uh, the fact that the U.S. military has a long history of discrimination. I mean, during the revolution, Washington actually banned black soldiers from serving and then they got desperate. And there were integrated units in, 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 the, in, in the U.S. Army during the American Revolution. And then uh, the military was segregated 
1962. Black men were barred from serving until 1863, at which point they were allowed to enlist, but the military was then segregated until 1948 and then not really fully integrated until the 50s. The first uh, the, the first war that the United States participated in um, that in which the mil- military was fully integrated was the absolute and needless disaster in Vietnam. Um, so that gives you an idea of how far we are uh, from actual institutional racism in the military. There are people alive today who served in segregated units. Um, so th- this so Milley is very much trying to protect his institution. It's not that he's some sort of liberal um, he is l- literally just trying to defend the military from the kind of uh, culture war attacks that are being leveraged on it by the right at this moment. Adam, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on the publication of the book. I really loved it. Thank you so much for having me and I really appreciate it. Listeners, don't miss Adam Surwer's The Cruelty is the Point out this week from Penguin Random House. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. Our show's producer is Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these spots, you'll find links to our LitHub Radio show notes, including the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on LitHub's virtual book channel and on our own YouTube channel. Our new website, with our full video and audio archive and episodes grouped by theme for educators, is at fnfpodcast.net. Special thanks to University of Minnesota student Shashank Murley, who designed the site, and recent University of Minnesota graduate Dylan Miettinen, who helped with its initial conception. Happy reading, writing, and listening from Fiction Nonfiction. Fiction.